0: What are the plagues? What do they stand for? What do they accomplish? These are the questions that we'll be answering today as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus. Open your Bibles with me, if you please, to Exodus chapter 7, and you might find it helpful to keep your Bibles open throughout this message. Exodus chapter 7, look for verse 8. If you're using the Bibles provided this morning, you'll find that passage on page 58. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, feel free to locate one of these underneath seats and take it with you as our gift to you. Exodus chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in the 8th verse. While some of you are still getting there, I'd like us to note that this exchange we're about to look at with Pharaoh reminds us that the struggle we're witnessing is not between flesh and blood, it's supernatural. It's not between Israel and Egypt, it's not even really between Moses and Pharaoh. Uh, it's between God, uh, who sent Moses to liberate his people, and Satan, who is a, uh, holding um, Pharaoh uh, as a pawn. So what we're witnessing in these events Come; these next few chapters are really skirmishes in the cosmic war between good and evil. Exodus chapter 7. When the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God knew that Pharaoh would ask for a sign. And so he empowered Aaron to be able to throw his staff down that it might become a serpent. That's an impressive trick in anybody's book, wouldn't you agree? But somehow Pharaoh's (coughs) magicians, his wise men, his sorcerers, were able to duplicate this trick. How did they do it? Some scholars believe that they were just superior illusionists, that they were true magicians. They were like the ancient David Copperfields. But others believe, and I am in this camp, that the magicians perform their wonders by the power of Satan. Secret arts can be a reference to demonic activity, spells and incantations. And Satan has power, we know that. Jesus calls him in John chapter 12 the, the, the ruler of this world. And in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, we read this. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. So the sorcerers conjured up their own snakes, but to everyone's surprise, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. This imagery, this this word swallowed, is going to show up again when the Egyptian army is swallowed by the sea. In that instance, the power of God would be on great display just as it is here. Aaron's staff is swallowing up the staffs of the magicians in a way of saying that the God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt. And that is certainly one of the purposes of the plagues and one of the lessons of the plagues that the lord god of the hebrews is glorious above any other god any other deity that man could ever imagine and egyptians had plenty of imagination as we'll see in a few minutes so this incident here is kind of like the prelude it is the introduction and in some ways it's actually the conclusion of the signs and the wonders that we're going to be looking at today in exodus chapter 7 verse 14 through exodus chapter 10. There were 10 plagues in total, 10 separate blows or wounds that were delivered by God onto Pharaoh and Egypt. This morning, we're going to fly over nine of them. We're going to leave the deadliest one for next week. And by fly over here, I mean that we're going to take a a quick look, a broad view and a quick look. We're not going to get into a bunch of detail, okay? We will not be reading the entire text, though you are encouraged to do so. If you haven't read this passage of scripture, Exodus 7 through 10, please do that. Also, we're gonna be moving fairly quickly. I will do my best not to talk like somebody who's experiencing a manic episode, but there is a lot of of ground to cover here this morning. Um, I I wanna hit some high points for you, and I wanna pull out some of the major themes, and my hope is just that that will equip you to study it more thoroughly on your own. So really what I'm trying to do here this morning is get you started on a study of the plagues, okay? A fill-in-the-blank sheet is provided this morning in your bulletin. If that helps you to follow along and, and keep up, then feel free to use that. That's there for you. If that distracts you and you don't like it, then just ignore it. Not a problem. I want to begin by looking at the sequence of the plagues. What were the plagues? The first plague was a plague of blood. The text there is for you written down for you, seven fourteen to 24. Pharaoh was warned about this. And what happened? Well, he didn't pay attention. And God uh, allowed Moses to strike the River Nile and it turned into blood, okay? I think what's happening here in this particular plague is that God is showing the Egyptians what that river really was. Because if you remember back in the first part of our study, when when the Israelites were not allowed to keep their baby boys, the Egyptians were commanded to do what with them? Throw them into the Nile, drown them. So you know what? The Nile, even in all its beauty before this plague, was a river of blood. It was a river of death. I think here God is just showing everybody this is what it is. Like, I saw, I see, I know. The second plague is a plague of frogs. Frogs, most of you think, well, I like frogs. What's the matter with frogs? The problem with the frogs here is that they were everywhere. A cute little frog once in a while is okay, but when the frog climbs into your bed, that's a problem. Or when you find him in your kneading trough or in your oven, that is not where frogs belong. And that's what's happening here in the plague of the frogs, okay? The sorcerers are able to duplicate this plague just as they were able to duplicate the plague of the blood. That's important because their power is going to run out here in a little bit. Moses here in the plague of frogs, I don't think he's being cocky or overconfident, but he actually lets Pharaoh set the time when the frogs will have to go away. So again, exerting the fact that he has power from God that is greater than any God in Egypt. The third plague is a plague of gnats, chapter 8, 16 to 19. Now there's no warning that comes on this one. And when I say that Pharaoh gets a warning, it's almost always in this form. Moses showing up before Pharaoh and saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may worship me or let my people go that they may serve me. No warning here on the plague of gnats. Aaron is instructed to strike the ground with his staff. He does. The dust that comes up becomes gnats. We don't know what that really means, gnat. What, what kind of bug is that? It could be a flea. It could be a sandfly. It could be a mosquito. We don't know but we do know that they covered man and beast, which means that they were bothersome and they afflicted everybody and everything, okay? The magicians can't make this one happen, and so they deduce this must be the finger of God. They're starting to see that there's power greater than themselves out there. The fourth plague is the plague of flies. Flies, nasty flies. Again, Pharaoh is warned, but this time God deals a little differently uh, with his people, We see in verse 22, there are no flies afflicting the Israelites, just just the Egyptians. And Pharaoh begins to negotiate here, okay? He already lied a little while ago, I think back in the plague of the frogs. By the second plague, he's already lying. Okay, I'll let you go. He never intends to, but now he's starting to negotiate a little bit. I'll I'll let you go if. We start to see a theme emerging here where Pharaoh's trying to back off, save a little bit of face, but he's not going to do very well. The fifth plague is the plague of livestock. Again, Pharaoh is warned. A plague on the livestock. If Pharaoh would not let go of God's property, then God was going to afflict Pharaoh's property. I think that's kind of the lesson that we see here. Um, This one hits him in the pocketbook. Again, the Lord makes a distinction. The livestock of the Israelites has no plague, is not afflicted, but the livestock of the Egyptians, that is afflicted. And so Pharaoh's a little bit perplexed he sends some men out to investigate. Is this true? What's going on here? How can that be? And, and, you know, what's what's so good about their cows versus my cows is what's going on. The sixth plague is a plague of boils. Again, there's no warning here. Soot has changed miraculously into boils. Um, I find this one very interesting because we haven't heard from the magicians recently. Okay, they were able to duplicate the first one. They were able to duplicate the second one, the third one. Now they're starting to say, this must be the finger of God. We haven't heard from them at all, but we get to the plague of boils and we find out they can't even stand in Moses' presence now. Not only have they become so obsolete, they can't even stand in his presence. Now that might be because they're so ceremonially unclean. And Egyptians did have a thing about Cleanliness that they literally couldn't come and perform any actions. But I just have this vision of these sorcerers and magicians just very uncomfortable and standing on one leg and scratching their boils with the other leg. They can't even stand in front of Moses now. They are afflicted themselves. They have no power to stop this. seventh plague is the plague of hail. In this one, the Egyptians are warned to give an order that everyone should take cover. This storm is coming. It hailed yesterday, by the way. Did you know that? Were any of you out in that? Yeah, I was at Home Depot when it started. It sounded like someone was playing a snare drum right over my head on that metal roof. Bang, 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 bang. Pretty impressive. Looked out. Everything's kind of going sideways, almost like a blizzard out there. Couldn't compare at all to what's happening here in Exodus. Not even a little bit. As impressive as that was. The Bible says this is the worst storm ever. The worst storm that Egypt had ever seen, Okay. Some of Pharaoh's officials here actually are starting to believe in God, and they think, we better take heed of this warning and get our livestock in and get our servants in. But others, they just hardened their hearts, and they said no, and they left everything out in the field, and it was a great destructive storm, the worst storm ever. But guess what? It didn't hail in the land of Goshen. It did not hail on the Israelites, on God's people. The eighth plague is a plague of locusts. Again, there's a warning. Pharaoh's officials at this point are starting to think about what's happening to the country because of the hard-heartedness of their leader. They're in a tenuous spot. They want to speak truth to him, but he is the Pharaoh, and he can kill them anytime he feels like it. So they have to be careful, but they ask him, don't you see that the country's being ruined? Don't you think maybe we should start to think about letting these Israelites go? I mean, look at all this bad stuff that is happening. Of course, Pharaoh has nothing to do with that ninth plague is a plague of darkness. This plague comes with no warning. Darkness covers the land for three days. Uh, Dark darkness, blackness, a darkness like no other. The scripture says a darkness that can be felt. That's how bad it was. But all the Israelites, the scripture says, had light where they lived. (laughs) So Pharaoh summons Moses. He's had about enough and he says, okay, go, but leave your herds And Moses says, no, no, we're not going bits and pieces. It's not going to be men only. You're not going to restrict how far we can go or anything like that. No hoof is to be left to hide when we go. And so to that, Pharaoh gets mad, kicks Moses out and says, I don't ever want to see your face again. That's the sequence of the plagues. Why these particular plagues? Why these types? There were lots of things that God could do. This is what he chose to do. Why? Well, the answer is, that these plagues, though they are literal in their occurrence, are also symbolic. Each, each is designed to challenge and expose the impotence of an Egyptian deity, which, of course, we here in America in 2019 don't know anything about or very little about. We don't understand the Egyptian deities, do we? We have, we have all we can do to try to get a grasp on the deity we know about that is the one true God. We, I can't list all these deities, but listen to what James Boyce said. In order to understand these plagues, we need to understand they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. There are about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile River, the land, and the sky. About 80. So we are definitely not going to take time to list those 80 or study them. But just as as an example, uh, we read a couple of times in these chapters that Pharaoh got up and went to the river early. We think, okay, maybe he's starting his day off with a bath, like a lot of people like to do, or maybe he's going down there, he's going to start his morning with a swim. But one might just as reasonably conclude that he was going down to the river to pay homage to one of the three gods of the Nile. And that would have been a practice that a lot of people would have made which makes that first plague particularly shocking, right? If you're worshiping the Nile and all of a sudden it changes completely. It might also explain why Moses was instructed to interrupt Pharaoh on that riverbank, sort of a way of getting in there and and stopping that false worship. Another obvious blow at an Egyptian god comes in that plague of darkness. The Egyptians are well-known sun worshipers. Some of you are too, I'd say. By the way, you've been complaining about the weather. They revered the God of the sun. And you know what? For three days, God overpowered their God. Blotted him out, really. Um, Of course, because that God doesn't exist. Who created light? God created light. And God sends light. He sends light when he wants to. He sends darkness when he wants to. He blocks out light when he wants to. Because he's God. Because he is the one and only true God. So the plagues, if not all of them, then many certainly correspond with and in some ways are attacks on the gods and the goddesses of the Egyptians, okay? And that that squares with Numbers 33, verse 4, which says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Not just the people, but also on their gods. In his sovereign will, God afflicted uh, people in the order that he did, in the way that he did, knowing exactly what each affliction was intended to represent. That's a sequence, that's a symbolism now. Let's look a little bit at the severity of the plagues. As they progress, they generally increase in intensity. The first three plagues were annoying and they made life uneasy for the Egyptians. If they wanted a drink of water, for instance, there for a week, they had to go dig for it. And then the frogs, the cute little frogs came, but they were everywhere. They showed up all over the place. And then, of course, when they were commanded to go away, they, they were piled up, and the scripture says plainly they stunk. There was a great stench throughout the land because of those frogs. The seventh plague, or the fourth plague, the plague of flies, had a literal bite to it. Um, in Psalm 78, verse 45, we read that the flies devoured them, so that there was a stinging kind of fly. We don't know what kind, but some kind of stinging. Fighting fly. In the fifth plague, animals and, of course, people's livelihoods are dying and Pharaoh's own property is impacted. With the sixth plague of boils comes excruciating discomfort, impaired functioning, and we could safely say that during that plague, no Egyptian was comfortable in his own skin. It wasn't possible. Everybody was afflicted. The seventh plague of hail was incredibly destructive. It tore things up. It knocked things over. It involved the taking of animal, and human. Life, the eighth plague, the locusts, decimated the land. The locusts came in and took care of everything that the hail had left. And so this would be a years-long recovery process because of those locusts. And the ninth, of course, the plague of darkness made it impossible for anyone to function. They couldn't even uh, move for three whole days. So as we look at the severity of the plagues, we see that God's power is revealed in them in greater clarity and in awe in each successive plague. He's the God of the water. He's the God of the earth. He's the God of the sky. He's supreme over any and every deity in Egypt. Uh, now we ask why did he afflict Pharaoh and the Egyptians with these particular plagues? What are the purposes of these plagues? Why did he do this? And first thing we want to note is that all the plagues are miracles, okay? The plagues are all miracles. They are referred to in scripture as signs and wonders, mighty acts of God. So we might ask ourselves, well, what is a miracle? How do we understand a miracle? Like Phil Riken's definition here, he says, a miracle is a direct act of divine intervention in which God overrules his creation to display his glory. That's what a miracle is, a direct act of divine intervention in which God intervenes or overrules his creation to display his glory. So a miracle is a divine intervention. Miracles then, by definition, are supernatural, right? They cannot be explained by the mere laws of nature. I make this point because many scholars through the years have attempted to explain the plagues away or these signs and wonders that occurred in Egypt as naturally occurring phenomena. Those explanations, however, completely defy the plain teaching of the text. You have to have more faith to believe that they're natural than not, to believe they're miracles, actually. Now, there have been certainly in times past, uh, there have been, and we might expect also in times future, right, times to come, algae blooms and hordes of locusts that make their way across a landscape, very severe storms, animal species do die off because of unknown ailments, infectious diseases do wreak havoc on human populations. These things have happened, They are happening. We might expect that they will happen. To what do we attribute these things? Well, people today, and if you are a Christian, and if you use this term, stop it. Okay? Stop it. People today will lay these things at the feet of Mother Nature. There is no Mother Nature. There is only Father God, right? He made this world. He made everything in it. He made its natural laws. He works within them sometimes, and sometimes He suspends them. He manipulates them, as in the case of the plagues, in order to display His glory. Just a couple of for instances, and then I'll leave you on your own to read through and see the rest. But if, for instance, the turning of the river into blood was an algae bloom, or we say a Nile River red tide. Uh, or as some have suggested, a case of, of a red silt um, being washed downstream by heavy rains upstream that caused the river to come into a reddish color. If, if that is the case, then we have a few problems, okay? First, the scripture says the river turned to blood. That's what it says very plainly. It turned to blood. It doesn't say it turned to something that looked like blood or that it resembled blood, but that it turned to blood. And I know that makes some of you squeamish, and frankly, it kind of does me too. I don't like blood, but neither did the Egyptians. Remember when Moses said, no, we can't can't worship here within the confines of this land because we're going to do a bunch of sacrifices. And if we do that, you people are going to hate it and you're going to stone us. You're going to turn around and you're going to punish us because you can't stand that sight of blood. Well, this river turned into blood, and this thing that was worshipped by the Egyptians, an object of beauty for sure, became repulsive to them. Second, there is, an, but it was real blood, is, what I'm, is my point, it was blood. Second, there is an issue of timing. The river turned to blood because of a specific act of obedience by Moses. Exodus 7:17. 7, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. And that's what he did. As soon as he struck the Nile, it turned to blood. That's not a coincidental algae bloom. Okay, that's not like, oh my goodness, all the silt showed up at the exact same time and now it's red. It was was an instantaneous transformation. That's what God did. He instantly transformed one material into another, which is a miracle because he can do that. Move to the plague of the gnats, chapter 8, verse 17. The gnats did not appear naturally, but right only when Aaron struck the ground and all the dust of the earth came up and became gnats in the land of Egypt. That again is a miracle of transformation. that the sorcerers couldn't duplicate it, that's the one they say, okay, that's got to be the finger of God. And then similar in the plague of, of the boils, chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Moses and Aaron are commanded by God to take a handful of soot from a furnace, presumably a furnace that was used to fire the bricks that the Hebrews were forced to make. So think of the irony here. The labor that plagued the Israelite slaves produced the soot that's going to plague all of Egypt. And and they are commanded to throw that soot up into the air. And when they did that, a fine dust was created and it settled on man and beast and it created painful boils. Now, I don't know where you generally get boils from but I'm pretty sure it's not soot thrown into the air. And even if it were, I'm pretty sure that would have been an awful isolated (laughs) instance if it weren't for the miraculous hand of God that turned it into a fine dust that covered the entire land. Again, God changes the material of one thing into another on command. This is a pattern that speaks to the miraculous nature of the plague. Also noteworthy, while these plagues settled on the land, many of them didn't affect the Israelites who lived in that same land. I've mentioned that before, which is a miraculous distinction. How can the Egyptians be in total darkness and the Israelites have light? How can there be a line drawn between Pharaoh's cows and God's cows in the pasture, right? How can bugs or airborne diseases be told, go this far and no further? That doesn't work, except by the hand of God. And finally, and something that's really easy to overlook, the end of these plagues are miracles as well. Moses prays and the afflictions are lifted. As quickly as they come, they go. Because God is involved, because God is beckoned by Moses. And that's not natural or coincidental. And that's, I think, one of the reasons Moses, when do you want him to go? Let me prove to you that this isn't just a random thing. I'm going to go ask my God, and, and, and he's going to do it when you ask. So the plagues are, without question, divine intervention, acts of God, right? To make them out to be anything other than that is, to, is really just to betray our uncomfortableness with the, with the miraculous. That we are so bent on trying to understand everything and have everything conform to our own thinking and our own reason that we don't leave room in here for an amazing God, the Scripture says, whose thoughts aren't ours, right, and whose ways are not Hours. We want to blame weather patterns even today. We want to blame weather patterns on people and natural laws. But listen to what the scripture says. Listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with majestic voice. When His voice resounds, He holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men He has made may know His work. He stops every man from His labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber the cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters His lightning through them. At His direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever He commands them to do. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water His earth and show His love. He brings the clouds. that Mother Nature. Father God, plagues are miracles. The plagues are miracles. And their first purpose is to bring glory, to put God's glory on display. And and this happens a number of ways. First of all, the plagues prove that God's word can be trusted because the plagues are promised judgments of the true God on Egypt and her false gods. God said this would happen and he made it happen. The plagues are all demonstration of his power, of his omnipotence. God performed these signs and wonders so there'd be no doubt there's no God like him. That's why we sang, there is none like you. Because we have to be reminded from time to time that there is no God like our God. Now on the flip side of this is the truth that all of Egypt's gods and goddesses like all idols and false gods, are proven inadequate. So there's no God like our God who is all-powerful, but the Egyptian gods and goddesses, they're inadequate. They are impotent. They cannot protect the people who worship them. And that's the truth with all false gods. That's the truth with every idol and every false god that we set up. It can't take care of us. It cannot protect us. The sooner we learn that false gods will always fail, the better off we'll all be. The plagues are all demonstration of God's authority. So Pharaoh acted as if he were God. He believed himself to be God. He expected people to come in and bow down and treat him as if he were God. But truly, you know, he had only what God had given him. That's true of all of us. We have only what God has given us. The book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 21, says he, that is God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God is in charge of all of this and Pharaoh only has what God has given him. The miracles demonstrate God's complete authority over everything in Egypt, the economy, the weather, the crops, the animals, the people, even the sun, which they worship. His authority is comprehensive, Chapter 3, verse 20 tells us the plagues are sent by God as part of His plan of liberation, that they serve as inspiration to let His people go. They compel the Egyptians to free God's people from their slavery. The Pharaoh, who will not let the Israelites go, who fights at every turn, will ultimately and eventually drive them out of his land. He will drive them out of his country. If you skip ahead to Exodus 12, verse 31, 33, you'll see that. We'll get there in a little bit. The plagues were part of God's plan to make himself known. Part of his plan to make himself known. Not just in a particular period, place, or setting, but everywhere. Chapter 10, verse 2 tells us the plagues are designed to give the Hebrew parents and the grandparents, the children and the grandchildren, something to talk about. That God has performed these signs and wonders so that whole families through the ages would know and recount the truth again and again that He's the Lord. He is the Lord. He's the Deliverer. He's the one who makes us free. He's the one who's all-powerful. God intends for these plagues to make Himself known, and that's exactly what they did. They made Him famous in the region and throughout time. Exodus 9, 16 is God talking to Pharaoh, but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God used the plagues to make himself known in all the earth. Now the story of the plagues is full of intriguing details and twists. Let me just mention a couple of what I think are kind of unique or unique notes. And the first is this, that Moses and Aaron are obedient. In this narrative, Moses and Aaron are obedient. It hasn't always been that way. We've covered Moses' problems. We saw how he objected five times to the call that God put on him. And we see how he continuously brings it before the Lord. I don't know, kind of accusing God. I don't think I'm the right guy for this job. Maybe you should have chose somebody else sort of thing. So Moses, up to this point, seems to be fairly Uh, unsettled and even, you might say, argumentative with God. But something has changed. I told you that it would turn, and it has turned. Moses and Aaron here, and it said a few times, they did everything that God commanded them to do. No more arguing with God. An amazing thing happened because of it, by the way. You can argue with God all you want, but trust me, friend, you're going to lose the argument eventually. Okay, And all the time that you waste arguing with God, you're not going to be effective or productive for him in his kingdom's work. He knows what's best for you. He'll put your feet on the right path. There's no need to balk, and there's no need to hold him at arm's length. Do what he says to do. Do as he commands. Be obedient. And there's no end to the amazing things that God will do with you through you. Because he's awesome. Because he's God. That's exactly what happened to Moses and Aaron. They were obedient, and it's refreshing to see that. Second, I just think this is unique, that Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate the miracles of the staff turning into a snake, the plague of the blood, the plague of the frogs, but there's a great irony in this, in that the last two, that in duplicating the miracles, they actually only made life in Egypt worse, if you think about that. They were able to duplicate it, but it actually made things worse, right? I just think that's God's backhanded sense of humor, like, ah, go ahead. Hey, look, we made blood. Yeah, what are you going to do with that? More frogs. Fantastic. The the reality was that while they could duplicate the miracle, they couldn't do anything to send the blood of the frogs back. They couldn't change it. That's where they're really weak. what we see here is that the magicians could only go so far, they could only do so much. Working as I believe they were under Satan, what that tells me is something that we probably ought to keep in mind, particularly as we see a culture that's a little bit scary and a world that's going in a tough direction. But listen, Satan has limits. Satan has limits. God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, Satan is not. He has limits, he can only go so far. Yes, we have an enemy, the Bible's clear about it. He's like a devil, I mean like a a lion roaring about to devour whom he may, right? He is the devil. So we have an enemy, but he's not an unlimited enemy. There's an end to the things that our enemy can do. Now, i to wrap up quickly with a look at some of the recurring things that emerge in this account of the plagues. And there are lots, so I've just chosen a few. The first and the most obvious is this. I hope that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is the only one true God over all. He has a perfect plan, and he has all the power he needs to accomplish his purposes. God is in control. God is sovereign. A second recurring theme, of course, is the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. This comes up again and again. It is at times ascribed to Pharaoh, he hardened his own heart. It is at times ascribed to God, God hardened his heart. And here we see, as we've already covered this a little bit, again, not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored that we hold these things in tension and the Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that it's not one or the other, it's not either or, somehow it is both. The third third theme that emerges here, uh, we find in Pharaoh a real life example, hopefully a warning about this human habit that some of us would have to admit that we're guilty of, of calling on God when we are in trouble only to turn from Him when the relief comes. Has that ever happened to any of you? We get in a jam and we will promise God anything. Get us out of this and we will do blah, blah, blah. And then God comes through, he answers the prayer, we're out of our jam and all of a sudden we get amnesia about the obligations that we made to him the pledge and the promise, right? And Pharaoh does that as well. I'll do this, I'll do that, and he doesn't. I'll do it, and then he doesn't, right? Phil Riken says this, people will promise God anything when they're in trouble. Promise is soon forgotten. Pharaoh was troubled by the consequences of his sin. He was sorry for his circumstances, but he never owned any responsibility for creating them. Right? He just didn't like the way things were turning out. He wasn't willing to take responsibility himself. He wanted the result to change, but he himself did not want to change anything. He wasn't willing to change, right? And listen, friend, that's why the Bible calls us to repentance and not remorse. The Bible calls us to repentance, to repent, to turn away from sinful behavior, not just to feel bad about it, because it's quite easy to feel bad about it, feel bad about how things are working out, feel bad that it's not what you want, but not be sorry enough to change. The Bible says to repent. The Bible calls us to behavior. It doesn't call us to emotion. It calls us to behavior, to change, to turn and go in the other way. The fourth theme that we can't miss and we can't over repeat this is that the purpose of god's people is to give god glory that's what we're here for over and over again god tells moses to tell pharaoh let my people go so they can serve me let my people go that they may worship me right exodus is a book about being saved for god's glory And in this way, it answers some age-old questions. What is the meaning of life? And what am I here for? Right? We are here to give glory to our maker in everything we do. It really couldn't be more simple. That's our job. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in his first letter to the Corinthian Christians. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Lastly, I want to make a distinction here, or note this distinction, that God makes between his people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians who didn't believe. Because ultimately, this speaks to the same distinction that's going to be made at the end of the age. God will put a division between those who are his people and those who are not. He will put a division between those who are His people and those who are not. And and me just bringing this up and you hearing it, I pray you begin to think even now in your own life, who's on what side of that division? And what do you have to do? What can you do to to get them over to the right side? Because this is what the Bible says is going to happen. Now we read, We read most famously about this in Matthew's Gospel in the 25th chapter. There's a parable in there, a story in there about sheep and goats. And I'm going to read it to you, and it's a rather long passage, so I just encourage you to sit back, take a deep breath, close your eyes if it helps you to listen and attend. I'm going to start reading in the 31st verse. So Exodus is a story about the salvation of Israel, but it's also a story about the condemnation of Egypt. That Just as God punished the Egyptians for their worship of other gods, he's going to condemn unbelievers at the end of history because he's a God of justice and because he has made himself known. Most dramatically, he has made himself known in the person of his son, Jesus Christ who came to earth, and the Gospel of John says, dwelt among us. Jesus lived in love for 33 years on this earth in perfection, being tempted in all ways and yet without sin. He never earned sin's punishment of death, but he chose to bear it anyway, on a cross a crucifixion, where he was killed, and where his body hung, sacrifice for our sin. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve. On the cross, the wrath of God is poured out on him. He died and was buried. Three days later, he rose again from the grave, triumphant over sin and death. His sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient, acceptable to God to pay the debt of sin. That debt was paid so that all who turned to Jesus in faith, all who turned to Jesus believing, can have their sins washed away and can receive the gift of salvation and can know the hope of eternal life. God has made himself known most dramatically in the person of his son, Jesus, the image, Colossians 1.15, of the invisible God. And he will ask everyone, one day, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? And what will your answer be? What will your answer be? Will it be, I believed him, I followed him, I loved him, I gave myself to him? Or will it be, well, it hardened my heart, I just wanted to do life my way. I ignored all the signs, and I ignored all the wonders that were plain to me. At the end of the age, the God who is able to bring complete darkness on one people and light on another will put a final irreversible division between those who are his people and those who are not. The ones who believe will be delivered. And the ones who did not believe, like Pharaoh and, and, and his worshipers, they will suffer the consequences. So, my friend, my question is, do you believe? And if not, why not? I want to close with these words of Robert Murray McShane. 19th century Scottish minister who said remember also the present is the only time to be saved there is no believing no repenting no conversion in the grave no minister will speak to you there this is a time of conversion stand and sing together our closing hymn I'd encourage you to use a hymnal on this one number 674 I wouldn't trust my memory on this one. Six, seven, four.